Murray's Adirondack Tales by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Story of the Man Who Missed It. Chapter 1 Thanksgiving Day had come and gone, and the old trapper had retired after the festivities of it to his couch, and had yielded himself to slumber. His sleep was of the kind to be expected in one of his age and habits, sufficiently profound to satisfy the wants of nature, but by no means so heavy as not to yield back the sleeper to wakefulness at the coming within range of the senses of any sound or sight that was unusual. For some two hours the trapper had been sleeping, and the great white moon shining at its full stood nearly at that point in the zenith which marked the midnight hour, when the two hounds, who were lying on the great hearthstone in front of the log, still in full blaze and glow, lifted their heads with a common movement, and gave voice to a low, interrogative growl. "'What is it, pups?' said the old trapper, with a quickness of utterance that might have led one not acquainted with his habits to imagine that he had not been asleep. "'What is it, pups?' And he arose to a sitting posture in his bed, with his eyes on the dogs and his senses fully alert. The hounds, as if feeling they had done their duty, made no further manifestation, and again rested their muzzles on their extended paws but with eyes that still remained fastened upon the door. The old man slid from the bed and into his clothes with a hunter's celerity. But even while doing it, his ear caught the lightest possible sound of approaching footsteps. It was evident from the looks of the trapper that he was surprised. The steps approaching were without doubt those of a man. Had they been those of an animal, they would have caused no astonishment, for animals of the larger sort, especially when compelled by hunger, were not infrequent visitors to the little clearing in which his cabin stood, but to hear a man coming towards his door at the dead of night, when he supposed that there was not a human being within fifty miles, was extraordinary enough to quicken his attention and strike him with surprise. But whoever the man was that was approaching, he was evidently in no hurry. Occasionally he stopped, and after a moment's pause would come on again. His steps were not only slow, but the sound they made was the sound of a step taken in weakness or excessive weariness. Wondering whom his midnight visitor could be, the old man seated himself on the edge of the bed and waited his coming. The dogs still lay on the hearth, with their muzzles on their paws and their eyes fastened on the door. The steps approached the threshold and stopped. For a moment no further sound was heard. Then a knock sounded upon the door. It was a weak, timid knock not the strong, hearty, friendly knock that a hunter delivers on a comrade's door, but a faltering, half-mistrustful tap, as if the one who gave it had hesitated before giving it, and was by no means sure that he had the right to give it at all. The old trapper still remained seated on the edge of the bed, and before the faint sound of the feeble tap had scarcely sounded, said in his usual strong and hearty tone of voice, "'Come in!' For a moment no response followed the invitation. Then a hand was heard feebly fumbling with the latch, which finally it grasped, and the door slowly opened, opened as if the man was still in doubt either as to the propriety of his own conduct or the reception with which he would meet. Thus slowly the door opened, and a man stepped into the room. A dog followed the man. The door closed, and the man and the dog stood in the firelight fully revealed. The hounds made no movement, and the trapper stirred not an inch. 
Thus, for a full minute, the trapper and the hounds looked at the man and the dog, and the man and the dog looked at the trapper and the hounds. And it is doubtful if ever before there stood in a hunter's cabin so singular a looking man or a remarkable a looking dog. The trapper looked the man over from head to foot, and with equal curiosity studied the dog, each remarkable in his way. And as the reader is destined to learn of the peculiarities of both, it may perhaps be well that we describe the two singular visitors to his cabin whom the trapper thus unexpectedly saw standing before him. The man was tall, remarkably tall. He was spare, unusually spare. As he entered, he lifted a light cloth cap from his head, and his countenance was fully revealed. His hair was black, as black as could be, not over plenty in thickness, but long enough to reach stragglingly to his shoulders. Amid its blackness some gray was mingled. His forehead was high, unusually high and very prominent, especially in its upper half. His eyebrows were abundant even to shagginess, strong brows of coarseous hair. There was gray in them, too. His eyes were large, very black, very mild, a mildness that bordered on plaintiveness, but through their dimness there shone the suggestion of a gleam and a glow as if their mildness might be set on fire from some latent but unsmothered flame. His ears were large, set prominently out from the head, thin, sensitively edged. Between them and the eyes on either side was a recess beneath which the cheekbones projected sharply. The nose was large, but thin and finely curved at the nostril's edge. So far the face, if not strong, was remarkably intellectual, a face that denoted ability, a face that argued mental quickness, finest imagination, and the power to idealize the common so that it would seem extraordinary, to create another world if the present one should not suffice. But the mouth was weak. It was small in size, too small compared with the noble countenance above it. The lips were curved, and in spite of years, smooth and rounded like a boy's a mouth of remarkably infantile appearance considering the age of its owner. The chin beneath did not retreat, nor was it prominent enough for power. The curvature of the cheek as outlined by the jaws was not full enough to express determination and manly vigor. His head sat on a neck that was long and small. Exposure, for it was without cover, had wrinkled it and made his skin coarse. His shoulders were thin and stooping, such as students of unusual height acquire. His clothing was remarkable, first because there was so little of it, and secondly because it was of so thin a fabric. His coat was evidently unpadded, of cheap material, and buttoned closely around him even to his neck. It fitted him too closely to allow one to believe that his waistcoat was either a very thick or very warm material. His pantaloons could not be called stout, and were chiefly remarkable for their decorations. They were of composite material, and suggested Joseph's coat, without its splendor. The old trapper's quick eye noted several places of buckskin that had been stitched into the original fabric in different places, and several other pieces of light cloth that bore a suspicious resemblance to those little bags that dealers and family provisions are acquainted with. His shoes were large in size but low in build, and one of them at the toes resembled a doorway sufficiently open for easy exit. On the man's back was a pack, or what might have been a pack, if the contents had been sufficiently bulky to extend it. 
As it was, there was a look of leanness about it, which suggested that its owner was either not troubled with earthly possessions or else was too modest to display them. In his hands, the man held a rifle of flintlock pattern, very long in the barrel, and of an appearance which suggested antiquity. A little leather pouch and a small powder horn with a wooden stopple completed his outfit. Such was the man in outward appearance as he stood within the doorway, with the firelight shining upon him, while the trapper with steady and curious gaze looked him over. The dog was as remarkable in appearance as his master. He was of medium size, of the Irish breed in part, and showed unmistakable evidence of high blood, but blood by no means free of extraordinary outcrossing. For while his ears were long and thin, as an Irish hound should be, his body was clothed with the coarse, stiff hair of the terrier kind. To say that he was thin in flesh would not be a characterization. He was extraordinarily thin. He was not only thin, but he seemed conscious of his thinness. He did not stand erect, but in a kind of doubled-up and shrinking posture, as if he felt that his natural length was out of proportion with his thickness, and he could in some way improve his appearance by concentration. Yet he was by no means devoid of intelligence, for his eyes were bright, his muzzle lean, and his frontal prominent. He struck one as a dog naturally of uncommon parts, but who had experienced such a series of canine disappointments that he had lost confidence in himself. A more extraordinary-looking man, or a more remarkable-looking dog, was certainly never seen. The trapper rose from the bed on which he had been sitting, and, as if he had rightly divined the condition of a strange visitor, said, "'Stranger, what can I do for you?' The man looked at him with his large black eyes and replied in a mild, deferential voice, "'Are you John Norton?' "'Certain, yes, I be John Norton. And if there's anything John Norton can do for you, just state it. I was taking a little walk through the woods. It's a very pleasant night. I don't know as I ever saw a pleasanter night.' I and my dog were taking a little stroll through the woods. We are given a good deal to strolling, and as I was standing on the bank out yonder admiring the beauties of nature, I happened to see your cabin, and, and feeling in a rather companionable mood, I thought I would see if you were up. I feared I should interrupt you. I hope I haven't interrupted you, have I? Interrupted me? "'Lord, no, I was sitting here with the hounds, wishing somebody would come along, and you're just as welcome as if you'd been expected for a month.' The white angel that took into heaven the old man's sentence, which, from the ethical point of view, was not exactly truthful, attributed beyond doubt the slight inaccuracy of the remark to the motive which prompted and forgave it. For the old trapper was not slow to discern that if the stranger for whose coming he had placed the plate on his bountiful board that day had come late, he had come at last, and that God had sent a hungry man to his door. And so he added, his whole heart moving out toward the stranger, who, as he stood before him, presented the strongest possible appeal to his sympathies. Stranger, set your rifle there in a corner and move up in front of the fire. Here, pups, make room, and let your shivering companion have a chance to warm himself. And the old man shoved the great armchair in front of the blazing logs and actually took the gun from the stranger's hand and placed it against the wall, while the man moved forward and quietly seated himself in the offered chair. The old man busied himself for a moment in making additions to the fire and stirring the glowing coals, while the stranger stretched out his thin hands and warmed them by the genial blaze. "'Don't you want something to eat?' 
asked the trapper. The man continued to warm his hands for an instant before making reply, and then he said, I am not particularly hungry. I am not much of an eater. I don't want to trouble you. I see you have cleared away the dishes, but if you happen to have some cold victuals left from your Thanksgiving dinner, I believe this is Thanksgiving, is it not? Certain, said the trapper. Certain this be Thanksgiving, and me and the pups had had a great feast, and I had a plate set for you all day. How? asked the man. I had a plate, I say, returned the trapper, set for you all day. Indeed, I'm sorry I missed it. I have missed many things in my life. It is not unusual for me to miss things, but I always get them in the end. I always get them in the end, repeated the man with a rising inflection of the voice. You don't think it's anything very bad, do you? Addressing the trapper earnestly. For a man to miss things if he gets them in the end? Well, stranger, returned the trapper, I don't know about getting things at the end. It certainly strikes me that it's a good deal better to get them by the middle. This getting things by the end doesn't serve a man's purpose, as I conceit. Oh, I don't know, said the man dreamily. It don't make much difference when we get what we want, if we only get it in the end. But I am sorry if you had a plate set for me and you had food enough. Did you have food enough? And the man put the question plaintively with a tinge of incredulity in his voice, as if the habit of want had made him incredulous as to plenty. Are you sure you had food enough? Food enough, exclaimed the trapper. Heavens and earth, do you suppose me and the pups come to Thanksgiving without food enough? You just sit there a minute while I fetch you out your supper. And the old man busied himself in bringing the table to the center of the floor and filling it with the ample abundance left uneaten at the conclusion of the meal. When the man had moved forward to seat himself in the chair, his dog moved forward too. At first he had seated himself in a half-crouching posture, a little in the rear of the chair, as if, however sure his master might be of the cordiality of the reception, he himself was not certain of his welcome. But gradually, a little at a time, he had moved himself forward until he had actually placed himself in advance of his master, and was now sitting on the hearthstone scarcely a foot from the ashes. And even then it was noticeable that he shivered. He was evidently a dog of a great deal of character and perfectly self-possessed. Few dogs could have been thus placed within such close proximity to two of his kind that were strangers to him without either showing signs of fear or making some canine advances to his companions. But this dog showed, on the one hand, no sign of timidity, and on the other, no consciousness that another of his species was in the room, for he did not even turn his eyes in the direction of the hounds, nor in the direction of the trapper, who was bearing the savory dishes immediately passed him to the table, and when the latter placed a large platter of venison on the hearth in order to warm it within a few inches of his body, so that the odor of the meat must have entered his nostrils, he never by the least movement showed consciousness of his proximity, but continued to gaze with sober attention into the fire, as if his poor frame found full satisfaction in the ministry which the genial warmth was rendering to his system. Once indeed he did turn his eyes up to the face of his master, with a look absolutely human in their expression of gladness and gratitude. 
He even moved his forward parts so that by stretching his neck he could touch his master's hands that were extended toward the warmth. He moved his muzzle genially against one of the palms and lapped it with his tongue, and then quietly resumed his former position and again gazed steadily into the fire. The trapper was not slow to mark the action of the dog, nor sense of propriety of his conduct. "'That's a knowing dog, if he be a little thin,' he said to the stranger. "'You've consorted together some time, I reckon?' "'Yes,' replied his master. "'He has been my companion twelve years.' "'That's a goodly time,' resumed the trapper as he busied himself with the preparations. "'And a man who has feasted and fasted with a dog twelve years naturally grows to love him.' "'We have not feasted much,' said the man." We have never had much luck. We have fasted a good deal, and fasting makes better friends than feasting in this world. But we shall surely have our feast by and by. I have told him many times we should have our feasting by and by. I trust you may, answered the trapper. You shall certainly have a taste of it tonight, both ye and your dog, for the victuals be plenty and the cookin's as good as a man who has cooked his own food for seventy year can make it. Lucky, said the man speaking to his dog, through whose frame there still ran an occasional shiver. Lucky, our host says we shall feast tonight. A human being could not have understood the language more plainly. At least a human being could not have responded with a more positive manifestation of intelligence. For the dog turned his face with a quick motion toward his master, his ears pricked, His eyes fairly danced, his tail swept joyfully from right to left, and, turning deliberately around with his back to the fire, he fixed his eyes upon the table with an unmistakable expression of eagerness. "'Come, stranger,' said the trapper. "'Kick off your shoes and strip off your stockings and pull on these warm socks.' And the old man tossed a pair, knit of coarsest yarn, onto the hearthstone. "'and then move up to the table and fill yourself and your dog, "'who is mighty nigh starvation, as I judge. "'You'll both feel better out of your full, for it's a cold night, "'and I can see your tramp has been a-longin'.' "'The man did as he was bidden. "'He untied his shoes and removed them from his feet. "'His stockings were not the warmest, nor free of holes. "'And when he had pulled the thick, warm socks onto his feet, "'he rose and moved to the table with a look of contentment "'and happy expectation that seemed to lift twenty years from his record. "'The amount of food on the table seemed to astonish him. "'For a moment he held his knife and fork idly in his hands, "'while his gaze ranged over the bountiful board, "'as if he was in doubt from which dish to help himself first, "'while his eyes had the peculiar eager look of one who was so hungry "'that he could not suppress the evidences of satisfaction "'which the presence of food had brought to his face. "'You seem a little in doubt,' said the trapper. "'Which of the meats to try first? "'And I concede the reason of your feeling, "'for more than once have I fasted myself when a young man, "'in the old wars, "'and I was out skirmishing on the trail of the enemy.' when the sound of your gun would bring a hundred of the vagabonds onto you in a minute. Yes, I've fasted in the midst of plenty, and I knowed what it is to come to a feast suddenly when the stomach was empty and the craven of nature unnaturally strong in me. My advice to you is that you try the venison, Hunch, for it's the only meat that a man can fairly fill himself on and not feel sort of uneasy afterwards. Yes, try the venison, stranger." "'for the buck was a good'un, "'and you'll find the juices will foil your knife. 
The man waited no longer. He cut a slice of the venison of a size that showed his necessities were great or his determination high. The trapper's eyes fairly danced as he saw him land the piece on his plate. Yet hungry as the man was, he fed himself with entire propriety. But his knife and fork were nevertheless quick in their movements, and it was evident that the keen sense of his hunger had made him for a time oblivious of his surroundings, for he spoke not a word to his host, and his countenance never lost a look of determined eagerness. He had certainly more than half finished with the huge piece of venison with which he had helped himself, when he paused and, turning to his dog, who stood at his side looking up into his face, he said, "'Lucky, will you forgive me?' The words were spoken as they might have been to a human companion whom inadvertently he had slighted, or of whose presence he had become unmindful when he should have been specially mindful of it. The tone could not have been more apologetic had the words been addressed to a man and not to a dog, nor could they have been received more intelligently than the dog received them. He wagged his tail good-naturedly, while his eyes gave his master a look of affection that no one could fail to understand. The man cut the remaining part of the piece into sections and gave each mouthful to the dog. The dog ate with the same eagerness as his master, and, we may say, with the same propriety, for he stood steadfastly in his position, made no undecorous movement of haste, but received the morsels from his master's hand with such thankfulness as only a dog when hungry can show the master who feeds him. We need not say that the trapper had been no careless spectator of the spectacle presented by the man and the dog, nor was he untouched by the evidence of affection existing between the two, but profound as was his pity for his strange and nearly starved guest, the sense of humor in him was too strong not to be stirred. "'I certainly think, stranger,' said he, "'that we'd better join works, for I can see that I can help you out a little. Your dog certainly looks empty.' and it'll take a good deal of meat to fill him. I don't concede he's been very familiar with victuals lately, but I can see he has the true idea of eating. So if you'll just send him this side of the table, I'll feed him while you feed yourself. There could be a good deal of weight added to your dog by reasonable management afore you be ready to move back from the table. Thank you, said the man as he helped himself to another bountiful supply. But Lucky and I always eat together when we have anything to eat and I doubt he would take food from a stranger. I always divide my food with him. Don't you think that a man should always divide his food with his dog, John Norton? Yes, said the trapper somewhat hesitatingly. As a rule, I certainly think you'd be right. But if the master be hungry and the dog is a good sizin' and actually empty and victuals be scarce, I can't say. No, I certainly can't say that the man should divide with the dog at the beginning of the eatin'. A little later on, perhaps, he should divide. A little later on, as I conceit. The man was evidently not devoid of humor himself. For the first time since he entered the cabin, and for the first time for many days, perhaps, a pleased expression came to his face. The suggestion of a smile played round his lips, and he looked good-naturedly into the face of the old man sitting opposite, whose countenance showed through its lines that semi-witty expression which never seems so witty as when it beams from the face of the aged. But he evidently did not assent to the opinion of the trapper, for as the eating progressed, at every mouthful with which he fed himself, he gave an equal portion to his canine companion. It is doubtful if ever a feast was more heartily eaten or enjoyed, the food there was enough, and the man ate his fill. 
not only ate himself but gave to his dog, till it was evident that the hunger of both was appeased. At last he shoved his chair back from the table, and with a happy expression on his face, he said, Lucky, we have had a feast tonight. I told you it would come by and by. We must never be discouraged again, Lucky. No, we will never be discouraged again, will we? The dog fairly shook himself in his delightful endorsement of his master's affirmation. He actually frisked his assent, and opened his mouth as if he would give voluble expression to the pledge demanded on him. The trapper laughed, laughed as a host will when he sees the happiness of his guests, to whom, with his own hands, from his own store, and the benevolence of his heart, he has ministered. And he said from the impulse of his good nature, Stranger, is there anything else I can do for you? John Norton, said the man, I came to your door a stranger, and you took me in. I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was cold and weary, and you warmed and rested me. I was unhappy, and you made me glad. And I and my dog thank you for your goodness, and may the Lord bless you for what you have done for one of the least of his children. The man said this gravely, tenderly, gratefully and as he said it with a motion as natural as true courtesy and gratitude could make it, he laid a hand on his heart and bowed to the trapper. The trapper was visibly affected by the acknowledgment of his guests. His face in its sobered sweetness acknowledged the sentiment of the stranger and returned it with equally unconscious courtesy. "'You're not the first man,' he replied. "'It has come to my camp empty, for more than once have I shared my little with a stranger.' and more than once has a stranger shared his little with me. There's a good deal of honest giving and taking in the world. Leastwise, there's a good deal in the woods when the fortunate and the unfortunate meet, and Henry says that the same is true of the settlements, and I certainly concede that the Lord has knowledge of the honest giving and taking between his creatures that have and his creatures that haven't, whether it be done in the woods or in the clearance. As the old man mentioned the word settlement, a look of pain came to the face of his guest, as if the mention of cities had quickened unpleasant recollections. When the trapper had concluded, he replied, I know not whom you call by the name of Henry, nor would I dispute his word, but my experience of cities and of the men that live in them has not been of a character to impress me with either their generosity or their justice. I have found men eager to get and to keep, but I have not found them eager to give, John Norton, nor have I found them honest in their getting or their keeping. I have found them ready to cheat. I have found them ready to lie. I have found them ready to kill. And the man straightened his form to its erectest posture and looked the trapper steadily in the eye. I don't doubt, returned the trapper, that there be vagabonds in the settlements as well as in the woods, for more than once have they played their pranks on me. More than once have they fingered my traps and stolen the fur that an honest man's labor had earned. But I've left my marks on most of the rogues, and the few that have managed to dodge my lead will get fetched up in the judgment if the Lord keeps watch of the villainy in the woods. And I dare say he does, of the woods and the settlements both. Perhaps he does, said the stranger, but his judgment is a great way off, and the wronged find it hard to wait. I've often thought of that, said the trapper. I've often thought of that, and I've helped him out a good deal off and on. 
I was coming in for my traps this fall, and I caught a dirty thief rummaging among my pots and kettles. And he had in most anything I had in my cabin here done up in a bundle, and as I opened the door he was actually trying to get it on his back. What did you do to him, John Norton? asked the man eagerly, as if he was even more interested in the principle involved than the narration of the facts. I held a council with him, said the trapper, and I did most of the talking, and I mixed a good deal of earnest actin' with the talking, and between the actin' and the talking, I certainly concede I made the points clear to him. I doubt if the Lord will have much to do with this case, for I was a good deal riled, and I settled with the vagabond for time and eternity both. The fact is, said the trapper, and he leaned forward toward his guest, and placed his brawny hand on the table. I conceit that the judgment is a good deal split up, and gin out by piecemeal, and that the Lord's idea is that when the honest hunter finds a vagabond in his cabin, rummaging his stores, that the judgment day is come then and there. How does it strike you, stranger? The great book says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Certainly, certainly, that's right, that is. It's right from his point of looking at it. I don't concede that a mortal has any right to be revengeful, but in a matter of square justice, yes, in a matter of square justice, where the right and the wrong stands out like the prongs of a buck, it certainly seems as if the Lord meant that man should tend to the justice while he took care of the vengeance. I don't doubt that the vagabond I caught in the cabin here will get another raking over when the Lord takes him in hand, but I gave him enough of honest reckoning to serve divine purposes while he lives on the earth. While the conversation had been going on, the trapper had been clearing the table of the remnants of the repast, and at the conclusion of his remarks he drew a chair up to the corner of the fireplace, in front of which the stranger had already seated himself, and the two men, so unlike in character, and we may say so unlike in appearance, sat for a moment gazing silently into the fire, which roared and flamed loudly and merrily upward. During all the conversation the dog had been an evident listener. Whenever the trapper spoke, the dog turned his face and looked directly at him. When his master made response, he would as attentively look at him. Indeed, he had been gifted with human intelligence and human feeling, and, we may say, with human sense of propriety. He could not have paid closer attention to the dialogue as it proceeded. Now he was sitting upright between the two men, with eyes alert and every appearance of interest as to the conversation when it should be resumed. "'Where be your home?' asked the trapper suddenly. "'I have no home,' said the man. "'Where was your home?' queried the trapper again. "'I never had a home,' said the man." The trapper seemed for a moment disconcerted. He raised his face and, looking at his strange guest, said, "'Where are your friends, and where be your family?' "'I have no family,' replied the man. "'Nor have I friends, save one.' "'Where's he?' the old man asked. "'He is here,' replied the man. "'Here is the only friend I have in the world.' And he looked at the dog. It may have been an answer to his look, it may have been from the fine sense of interpretation of what was being said, but from whatever the cause, the dog, when his master said, This is the only friend I have in the world, moved himself closer to the man who loved him, and laying his muzzle on his knee, looked lovingly up into the countenance of one who claimed him as his friend. Where was you born? 
And what country do you belong to? insisted the trapper. I do not know where I was born, returned the man, and I have no country. Stranger, said the trapper, I ask your pardon if I be meddling with your own business, but you've come into my cabin and you're welcome to stay, for I see you be in trouble. And I've lived on the earth long enough to learn that them that be in trouble have earned a home and paid for it in suffering, and that for such the Lord intends that every house of the fortunate should be their home. And here you've come, and here you can stay and welcome, and I shall not meddle with your sores. For a man's sores, like a man's grave, should be respected by the living, and no stranger should touch either. But it is pleasant and converse to know who you be talking to, leastwise to know his name. So I ask you plainly, what is the name your mother given you? I do not know the name my mother gave me, said the man. To say that the trapper was astonished would but half express his surprise. He sat erect in his chair and fastened his eyes on the man as if expecting to discern evidence of insanity, but no such evidence could he discover. The man's face and every feature of his face, the calmness of his speech, the decorous propriety of his conduct, substantiated beyond doubt his sanity. The trapper had finished his inspection. All doubt of the stranger's sanity had, by the inspection, been dismissed from his mind. His guest was perfectly sane. Of that he was sure. The conviction only deepened his astonishment. Unable to solve the mystery and greatly excited at the climax which the dialogue had conducted him, he exclaimed, For heaven's sake, stranger, what is your name, and how shall I call you? John Norton, said the man. Only parents have the right to name a child. My parents doubtless named me, but those parents I never saw, and that name I never heard. Whether it was a family name or a name denoting character, a name given in hope or a name given in dread, I know not. Family I have not, parents I never saw. By strangers I was reared, and by ignorant strangers named. The name was not a name, I outgrew it. When I came to the knowledge of its giving, I discarded it. Men outgrow names, John Norton, and they get new names. Each man names himself. The joys of one man name him, and the griefs of another name him. I have had no joys, and therefore joys cannot name me. I have had only grief, and therefore grief must name me. John Norton, he asked me who I am, and what is my name. I will tell you. I am the man who has missed it. For a full minute the old trapper said not a word, but sat looking steadfastly at his guest. Outside the moon shone brightly, and its white light poured in through the curtainless window, lay with a great white patch upon the cabin door, around the white edges of which the aggressive firelight played with many a threatening flicker. The hounds lay sleeping on the hearth, and the stranger's dog still sat with his head resting on his master's knee, and his eyes turned to his face. At length the old man said, Friend, the night be not half gone, and a man of our years sleep a little. I have heard many a story told by the campfire and many a frontiersman's tale when night overtook us on the trail, and we was waiting for the morning. And next to the sound of a fiddle, nothing stirs me more than a story, especially if it be strange and unusual, and if you be willing, I should be glad to hear the story of your life. 
for certain it is that never before did I meet a man without a home, without family, without friends, without a country, and without a name. For a moment there was another pause. The old man, with a deference born of years, and perhaps borrowed in part from the habits of the Indians with whom he had passed so much of his life, remained silent. At length the man said, You have asked me for the story of my life. You shall have it. It is a singular story. Listen. And so with his hand resting on the head of his dog, the singular being, in a singular way, proceeded to tell the singular story of The Man Who Missed It. End of chapter 1